Welcome back to a new episode of uh, Localizing the Globe. In today's episode, we have uh, Dr. David Bozold. He's the fourth time on this podcast. And in today's episode, we are discussing with him uh, the topic of uh, double standards. And the term double standards is pretty frequently invoked by leaders uh, from non-Western states and non-Western countries in order to designate foreign policies of Western states especially those of uh, the United States. And I thought it would make a very interesting topic for our discussion, uh, precisely because we hear it so often in public discourse. But if you look up academic literature, you will find hardly any articles written on this topic. So in today's episode with David, we are trying to define double standards. Uh, We are trying to understand whether double standards can be useful term in your research and also just trying to argue what kind of situations in foreign policy can be considered double standards and what situations do not really fit this definition. Um, So I think it turned out to, to be a very interesting discussion and if you want to support this channel, please subscribe, share with your friends. And as always, enjoy. Uh, So, hi, David. Hi, Dimitri. Welcome, welcome back with uh, our fourth episode together. Uh, and today our topic is, I guess, pretty interesting one. It's double standards. Uh, and I guess I want to kick it in by asking you what are double standards and maybe how can you and can you define even double standards? I think we're talking about double standards in foreign policy, right? right. So my guess is most countries have some kind of image or self-understanding how they should act internationally. And I think double standards has been mostly discussed or studied in the realm of human rights policy, I guess. Mm-hmm. So my understanding of, or my definition of double standards would be that you have an expected behavior or expected foreign policy decision that you sort of are supposed to act in a certain way according to or in a certain situation. And I mean, the double standard arises if you see a discrepancy between what you would expect a state to do from like what it is actually doing. I don't know, that sounded a bit complicated, but maybe you can just tease yeah. out what what was wrong in my definition. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess it's, it's, it's very complicated for me as well, because I think on, on kind of like personal level, everyone understands uh, when you meet double standards, so it's something like I guess you can define maybe when your actions uh, diverge from your words or something like you, you kind of like, yeah. When your may actions... I interrupt you? Is that yes. is that is that related to what do you think that you personally observe that you fall into the trap of double standards, or would you say that you ascribe that to a certain person? Because I think that's I a critical you... difference as well. Because I mean, if you, I mean, there is this this double standard where the the person or the country that acts actually thinks, hey, we're doing everything as we used to. And uh, others will then do finger pointing and say, 
hold on, but I mean, this is really different. And I mean, uh, yeah. this is really hypocritical or this is not what you promised to do. And yeah. uh, you are now actually engaging in double standards. Um, so I think what you seem to suggest is even worse, that, I mean, you, you notice yourself that you're doing something wrong. No, I think it's exactly when someone points it out, because, I mean, usually, it's, it's, of course, we're talking about states, but it's important to have certainly, like, an audience. And, of course, uh, you can think, if you take, like, the U.S. example, they're always doing everything all right, even, even of course, like, their actions, like, really diverge from their words and their kind of principles and norms that they try to promote. And then, of course, uh, Russia really... Uses this term a lot. It's kind of like a, a very common way to describe American foreign policy and Western. To discredit, I guess, U.S. foreign policy. No, no, or criticize it, if you put it mildly. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess it would be interesting even to trace, like in the discourse when they first use this word, but it's, it's really common to use it. I think like maybe Chinese also use it as well to describe. But what's interesting for me uh, that, uh, I mean, when you talk about the West, I found it's, it's it's very common even from Native Americans. Native Americans called like Westerners uh, uh, tongue twisters. Or they say like they, they, they kind of uh, the way they speak is not really how they do things, so to speak. So it was even like an uh, interesting observation from back in the days. Um, and it's just for me, it's, it's interesting. Of course, I guess when when we talk about double standards, it's usually how people from non-West or from what you define the West is complicated, but how people from non-West describe American or like Western foreign policy that it really diverges from its own principles, so to speak, or it's it's often it doesn't really match with words, so to speak. But words. would you would you suggest then that actually what you call the West is the only actor, or these are the mm -hmm. only countries that really face that problem of double standards, or would you say that's a universal problem? I think it's more like a universal problem. So I think that's why, for example, if people want to do like a discourse analysis, maybe discourse analysis reveals that bit. So you can really have a kind of like very pompous and very moral discourse, but this discourse doesn't really match with action, so to speak. I mean, in a classical example... But wouldn't that just be the difference between you have moral hyperbole or you have some, you know... Moral standards, seemingly moral standards, are something that you, I mean, you have high-pitched rhetoric and at the same time you have pragmatic politics or you have uh, pragmatic approaches, you have um, realpolitik, um, I don't know, constraints that force you to behave in a certain way. I guess that's sort of the, the excuse that others will do. I mean, so I mean, one thing is, is it actually, do we, don't we have that mismatch like, every day that the way that politicians try to sell their own policies is always that they are less critical in, in their rhetoric than, I mean, if you look at substance, substance usually falls short of the, re the rhetoric. I mean, or, or, I mean it's, it's not as great um, or grand as, as the rhetoric has it, or as you can find it in speeches. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, that's what you can see with every communique that is passed at summits. So, I mean, every, every summit document, you read all those great things, be it from the BRIC summit or be it from the latest G7 summit or now maybe from the Madrid um, NATO summit, you all always find pompous yeah. statements and then you feel, okay, I mean, if we really look at things on the ground, mm -hmm. they look a little bit different. And uh, 
the typical trick is you somehow promise billions of dollars, euros, rubles, whatever, and then uh, you you basically repackage things that you promised anyway, and then you just say, you know, I mean, what we used to define as this kind of global infrastructure program, we now label it the climate change initiative, and then basically it's the very same money, but it seems to be new money. So, I mean, mm -hmm. there are all those kind of tricks, I guess, but that's... Yeah. I mean, why would we need to call it double standards? Uh, I guess exactly because uh, uh, those principles that are being kind of like promoted or under these guys of universal and moral, they tend to be they tend to serve just certain interests, so to speak. So they tend to they, they tend to be invoked. I would say they tend to be invoked in order to look good. But I mean, if you follow the words, you can get like one picture, and everything is brilliant and everything is like. I mean, if you just look at like discourse of the U.S. foreign policy, of course it tends to be about human rights and it tends to be about all those goods. But of course, like pragmatic reality is different. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, I, I guess other international actors, including Russia, can be outraged in terms of like why would you? I mean, can, can be outraged in the sense of they try to pin like I point that this discourse is not really real. All those norms are not really universal and not really moral. They just they just like being kind of like invoked and used basically for, for some like kind of like interest or kind of well, you can even think of like concrete people with the concrete like resources in Washington or something in Berlin maybe uh, who try to invoke those principles in order to kind of promote certain policies. Um, yes, yeah, so in a sense, this is like attempt to to, to discredit them. In in most cases, and again, again, like if we coming to like kind of case studies and maybe recent news is like the whole the whole uh, deal between uh, like Turkey and NATO, where where like you know you have like this kind of like human rights should be put at the forefront of like you know any any kind of like NATO initiatives and even the whole principle that's an alliance between democracies. And of course, like the whole situation in Turkey is really grief and it's really bad with human rights. And then you know they ask like to extrapolate kind of like Navalny people from you know Sweden and Finland because like they want to persecute them and they don't want them to. to you you don't meet Navalny, but I mean PKK or like yes, Kurdish but people. it's but I mean of course like Navalny is also being labeled as a terrorist right now in Russia, so in he's charged with a terrorist and his organization is definitely charged with terrorist. Um, it's it's being persecuted for terrorist and something like this. Uh, but I mean, and and here then some uh, you know suddenly all your all your standards kind of like fall apart, and not fall apart, and then they 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 go to this Madrid summit and they make look at they make it look like Turkey is still a democracy, and you know there is nothing wrong with Turkey, even though of course like in any kind of reports and any in any official um, NGO like statements and reports, like, you can find so many kind of violations of human rights in Turkey, and it's like situation is really bad. Nevertheless, because like you know, it's in the interest of like American Americans and NATO to, to expand, uh, they kind of like close the eyes and. Well, you could say consolidate, or I mean, if, if I, I'm not sure whether that, that example is, uh, is is a good one for double standards because I think it's it it also shows you that you have something like a order of interests, or I mean, if, I, I'm sure that if for, I think if for. The Finns and the Swedes, it's a sort of trade-off. I mean, they are certainly, if you were to meet them under Chatham House rules, they will certainly tell you, hey, we're forced to basically do that. And we somehow have to decide 
is it more important for us to stick with our principles here in that regard or is there a way how we can somehow accommodate some of um, Erdogan's concerns as he would put it or maybe even um, fulfill some of his uh, wishes or demands while at the same time ensuring the, the most important goal for us at this point in time and that is becoming a, a, a NATO member. So I think um, it would actually be interesting whether you can have double standards within an alliance because I mean Most people would say, well, Dimitri, what we're seeing there is just institutional bargaining, right? I mean, it's yeah. in an inter-institutional bargaining. You have also the EU, you have the UN. Uh, if you look at the General Assembly, if you look at the Security Council, if you look at um, the different bodies, less the Commission in the EU, but I mean, especially um, the, uh, the European Council, you will have those negotiations or that bargaining hardball yeah. all the time. And I mean, sometimes you, you can... I mean, find some positions that are hard to reconcile, where you see really realpolitik behavior, and at the same time you see uh, sort of a moral posturing, mm -hmm. um, typically um, to be found in German policy. But yeah. I mean, then yeah, but so, would, sometimes people will say, well, you know, but, there is a compromise we have to it, do. But then it's just geopolitics, because again, like those people should be really, again, persecuted maybe in the country they, where they uh, like reside now, so they should be first persecuted. But the whole process seems like they will give those people, like those people don't have any kind of rights to Erdogan just because Erdogan really wants those people to be in jail or maybe to be killed. Again, again Erdogan is kind of like a Putin-style autocrat. I mean, it's like, it's the same thing. Just imagine that, just like compare and contrast, like the same kind of thing would happen with Russia and Russia were in NATO. And just Putin would say, you know, if you want our yes, you ha you would have to give us like Navalny, who is now in Berlin, because like you know Navalny is a terrorist, and like whatever you want to say, like that's how uh, that's how the situation looks like. And then Germany would, okay, we will give you Navalny, and just I mean, of course, situation looks just a little bit like really, even to a certain point, surprising because of course like Finland and Sweden would be one of like a few countries that would have like. Uh, the, the, do have a certainly very good reputation from human rights perspective. Then, of course, they kind of like give up this reputation in order to, 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 to join alliance. Uh, in join alliance where they have to, again, kind of like make a, make a deal with an authoritarian country that, you, you know, and, and I mean, the whole situation, of course, it just, if you look at it from geopolitical perspective, of course, it makes sense. But if you look from the perspective of the moral moral perspective that NATO tries to actually so much uh, to champion for in the modern times, especially in the war in Ukraine. It's all about democracy, human rights versus autocracy, non-human rights. You, you could see it's like they, they use the same principles basically as Putin uses in his own country, so to speak. They just like, if, they, if Putin needs something, there is no such thing as human rights. I mean, it can be involved if he, if he needs it. And here it seems like it's the same thing because it's suddenly those people are being kind of like extrapolated to Turkey without any kind of real charges. Well, I mean, of course, they will come up with some charges. But, you know, and I mean, the first, and the, 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 the thing is they came to Sweden and, and, um, and Finland exactly because they knew that they were safe there. Uh, in the first place. So this is like what is surprising. Now they're facing extradition, but I mean... Whether you have a person that is extradited, does that show the double standard? I think it's, it's I mean, it's, 
it's a it's a tricky and interesting case study um but i guess some framework i mean if you talk about it in an analytic sense i think some kind of um aspect of bargaining behind i mean sort of unofficial uh, secret negotiation i think is is more apt so i mean for instance i don't recall her name at the moment that but there was a um uk iranian a journalist who was in held in jail in tehran for at least two years um, who now was finally released. So, I mean, there are a number of, I mean, people, or you recall the, the case of the two, so-called two Michaels in, in the mm -hmm. Canadian case, right, that were then held uh, in prison mm -hmm. by China because um, the Canadians on American orders um, also put the um, one of the most important Huawei mm -hmm. um, officials um, in under house arrest in close to Vancouver. So, I mean, I think there are, in that sense, I mean, that's sort of also, or if you look at whether Snowden or whether, um, well, um, yeah. uh, I don't recall his name at the moment, who's now being um, extra, Julian. yes, Julian Assange, who's now being extradited from, or now being sent to the US from, from the UK. So I think, also within democracies, there there seem to be there are certainly problematic ways how um, things are handled, um, where you see discrepancies between hey, this is formally our legal position, or this is formally what we promised to whistleblowers, protection, etc., and and how how they then act. So I mean, what is actually happening behind the scenes is I think something for historians to dig up when they actually get hold of the. Um, unclassified documents in 20 or 30 years. Um, but coming back to um, double standards, I think it's um, it's actually a question why that would be a useful analytic concept. Because, I mean, the question is whether you can actually have a foreign policy without double standards, or to put it even um, in more concrete terms, I mean, is there actually something like a yardstick? Is there something like a template where you would say, these two foreign policy, the foreign policy decisions are comparable. Uh, so, I mean, in a way, the deviation needs to be explained or whether you would just say, you know, every foreign policy decision is one that you take from scratch and you may partly be guided by things that happened in the past, but, I mean, as such, there cannot be a double standard for the simple reason that every decision you take, you take that on taking into consideration... Um, various arguments that weren't in place uh, beforehand. So, because I mean, then it would just be something like an institutional path dependency that you say, okay, we have our foreign policy offices, and they are supposed to come up with this kind of document or this kind of uh, summit declaration. And um, you know what? We just do copy paste. And I have the impression that this is something that happens very frequently. Um, so you have this repetitive element. If you look at all those summit declarations, I had to look at, at those of the recent BRICS summits yeah. or of the recent G7 summits, and I mean, quite frankly, they are terribly boring to read, but and they, they usually, what changes is usually the number of figures. I mean, you have 600 billion there, and otherwise it's 450 billion, and, uh, well, and then they change the label of some kind of overarching yeah. program, but I, I mean, otherwise, it's, it's more or less I, I the same. So yeah, I mean, and, plus our chance, plus la même chose. Yes, I mean, and it seems they definitely. I guess I can, I can definitely maybe speak from Russian perspective. They uh, 
they do copy American text and they definitely like people like us just uh, designing and drafting those uh, those uh, those texts and declarations and of course they usually like look at what like uh, Americans will have to say or like NATO has to say on this issue in terms of they just like sometimes it feels they just copy paste and by doing so of course they also mock like the way westerners do things in the sense of the I mean, because I, I think I thought about like this point but like for example Russia doesn't really try to be good guys in the sense of like there is certain like words in that try to portray Russia as a good guy in discourse but still there is certain there is certainly when you listen to Putin he he's not like saying that we are good guys he's saying like we are protecting our interests that's like his main point we are a sovereign nation we are protecting our interests that's his main major kind of like a leitmotif of his uh, presidency or foreign policy so to speak uh but but exactly why uh just coming is this position then just double standards exist no i mean uh, they, because because uh, you in the west have they, those what like, those strange declarations where you actually put things in moral terms and uh, if you no, were honest i mean it's all about national interests why yeah, yeah, why yeah, uh, just coming coming to the point why like the whole idea of double standards can be interesting analytically and just interesting as a setting some 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 kind of a guiding guiding principle in your research because i guess it it teaches you that you cannot separate your values from your actions so in, in other words you couldn't really take your values separately from your actions and present them as like you know you operate in the in the kind of space of values and ideas while those like you know people as they call russia like country from 19th century operates with the brute force because again um like american foreign policy actions and they actually teach you that americans have never dropped just like the clear cut real politic or pro power projection thinking in their own actions but they kind of supplemented or they kind of like trying to mimic mask it with some like you know i would say basically normative bullshit that they they don't really adhere to themselves so why should other countries adhere to the same principles if like Americans who are trying to be like the masters or, or the, the grand designers of this whole thing of international system if they don't adhere to these principles why others should adhere to those principles and again with those texts and declarations i think certainly there is a point of mockery especially when you read the, the, the declaration between russian and chinese friendship and it's also about democracy and you just you can find the same kind of like a, it's like you know very uh dreamlike words something like we are all for democracy we are all for human rights and this is like so easy to draft to be honest it's, it doesn't take it that much effort for them to draft it development prosperity prosperity equality uh equal equal opportunity for everyone and stuff like this and of course there is certainly interesting point that you know by mimicking it of course they devalue and the whole they kind of deconstruct the whole western process so to speak they're trying to take it but when you go to like russian strategic principles of course in its core it's about like national interest it's not about it's it's not about all those good things it's just about national interest so and and i think for americans it would be the same because i mean in the end it's like americans pursue their own national interest of course like because americans as as well as russians are kind of like imperial they kind of try to like define their national interest in a very broad kind of like imperial almost way that they they definitely go beyond like you know national borders so to speak um but this is what i i think why the whole idea of double standards would be very interesting because 
it teaches you that you know you, you could definitely say your values don't exist separately from from your actions. Um, so then you would actually argue what actually has been discussed mm. repeatedly in foreign policy analysis and by some political scientists, and that is there is something like a value-based foreign policy, or there can be something like a value-based foreign yeah. policy, and it's that old thing, ever, <clears throat> value versus interests. I mean, is there, is there the possibility to have... Um, or, I mean, is, is that actually something that is incommensurate? I mean, is, can you have a value-based foreign policy and thereby neglecting or even act against your national interests. I mean, in German foreign policy discussions, this was often now the case when it came to the bilateral relations with China. So there was the, the idea, we should have a value-based foreign policy. What does a value-based foreign policy mean? This means we have to stand up for human rights in China and not um, make any economic deal that is possible. And then some people said, well... That means actually we should reduce our investments there. By the way, they are also not um, having a level playing field because German companies have to partner up with uh, or have to build joint ventures with Chinese uh, companies. So, I mean, it's, it's not to our interests. I mean, there were those who argued for changing the Chinese or the, the, the foreign policy towards China. Some, some basically argued that it's the way it was conducted was against the national interest. Others said it was against our values. Others said it was actually against both. But this so, is, I mean, um, I speak, I speak, and that's strange. Yeah, speaking about China, I guess China would be also the example, as, as well as Turkey, of course, example where you give up your values in order to pursue some economic benefit because even before you can think of, okay, during, before the war in Ukraine, uh, after Crimea, of course, Russia was already under sanctions, but, you know, they never tried to cut their economic ties with China, uh, even though, of course, China has an extremely poor record on human rights. There was a problem in, uh, how do you call this re region, with Uyghur most Muslim population. Basically, they have concentration camps, and they're all, like, those horrible that you can sometimes find some clothes made in China with those, like, uh, basically, where people write, help us because, you know, we are treated like, uh, like dogs or something like this. And I mean, and of course the question, why wouldn't, why wouldn't, like, German companies just, like, withdraw from China? Or, like, why wouldn't, you know, Western community impose sanctions on China? Because, I mean, they still do have a certain, like, level, a good level of economic ties between or the, the same goes for, like, I, I would say, U.S.-Chinese relations. They are pretty well, in terms of economic terms, they still exist, not like West, Western-Russian relations. Now they're completely broken. Uh, but again, like, you can really explain it by, by the fact that they're pursuing their own interests. I mean, in terms of economic interests, it's a, it's a great... Because China is way much more interesting market than Russia, in even, even if... And China, and you can really ask this question... Um, it's really harder to understand China, and China is a one-party communist system. And if you compare it even to Russia, of course, Russia would be way much more democratic mm. because there's still some official parties there, there's still a parliament there. There is no one-party system in Russia. I mean, of course, in practice it's different, but officially it's still more democratic. And I mean, there's still some press and there's internet working there, but not in China. In China it's a complete kind of Soviet-style 
autocracy, which kind of taps into like this dictatorship, maybe not personified, but of course with she, maybe also personified uh, dictatorship, which is I mean, what, what I'm trying to say. Long story short, that China is a way worse to deal with for the West and way worse from also like a moral standpoint. But West still kind of deals with China pretty well in terms of economically because it's a big market and you don't want to lose this big market. Uh, and here again comes double standards and where is, and you can really ask where is your, where is your foreign policy kind of like principles and values if you really kind of like differentiate. And the same goes about, of course, Turkey. Turkey has a very poor record on human rights. It, 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 there was an attempt of, uh, you know, coup and there were like a mass persecution. It was actually three, three four years ago there was a coup. I guess it's like days Longer, I think it was in 15. It was it? it was we it, have was to it? look it up. I mean, there was <laughs> a, actually, yeah. I mean, and there was a massive, uh, ma mass, uh, massive campaign that they just basically jailed many, many thousands of people uh, in Turkey. Again, this thing never happened in, in Russia, for example, where they just like jail people just because. I mean, maybe it's happening with Navalny, uh, Navalny kind of followers. The same thing where you just like massively jail people just because they have connection to 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 Gulen to, to this like opposition leader who lives in, in well he is in the states anyway but it was in fifth in sixteen sorry yeah, yeah. so we, oh, we we both didn't yes. have the correct date but I mean <laughs> of, of course it was a, uh, of course it was an event that showed that I mean Turkey couldn't really be considered part of this you know Western values because I mean there was a mass persecution event similar to. Soviet times or whatever, whatever, like any kind of like very hardcore dictatorship thing, where you just go to jail not because you're guilty of something, just because you're connected to the event, you're connected to this thing, you and stuff like this. Um, and again, there were no, I mean, of course there is like was a, some codes and relations between NATO and, and Turkey, between the U.S. and 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 Turkey, but they still go on. Like and of course, and when when coming to the coming to double standards and you could you can ask why and I think like even here double standards would be a good guiding principle you know then you can explain well you know there is like a national American and Western interest to keep Turkey in NATO NATO is like Turkey has a very important ge geopolitical you know, geographic position and no matter what happens in Turkey we should kind of like continue these relations with Turkey because I mean Turkey is still a NATO partner, even though Turkey, even though the whole NATO thing is about democracy and human rights. But well, it's primarily a defensive alliance, and of course, its members are supposed to be democratic. Now, um, I think it's not much disputed that the democratic record of Turkey is certainly worse than it was ten or fifteen years ago, mm -hmm. um, but I think the comparison with the EU would be better because I mean one of the problems and that's also something we discussed in classes of course that once you become a member of NATO there is not something like a democracy check or not something like a constant appraisal or um, evaluation of the political system in the respective respective member countries so I mean in that case if you're lucky and you are considered to be a democracy once you join you can actually have a terrible rollback and it's then it will then be difficult to kick you out of the organization based on your failures to be a democracy. Well, that is different in, in the EU, formally speaking. And yeah. we, we see that with all the debates 
where still a number of sanctions don't happen when it comes to judicial reform in Poland, when it comes to all kinds of decisions that are held under uh, or th that uh, the government of Fidesz um, under Viktor Orban had. So, I mean, I think there we really see the problem of double standards um, to an even larger extent, because yeah. in the EU treaties, we do have the sanction mechanisms, mm -hmm. and we the EU actually places a much stronger emphasis, mm -hmm. both in rhetoric and in action, or maybe less in action, um, yeah. on, on, on democracy. And you also see that with the acquis communautaire, with everything that is happening now, with new potentially or prospective new member states, yeah. um, a lot of it is about rule of law, is about democratic mm -hmm. accountability. So I think... Um, I agree that um, from a Western perspective, uh, certainly Russia, Turkey, China, People's Republic of China is not considered to be a Western-style democracy. But then the question is, what is actually creating those double standards? And I mean, one thing could be that it's, I mean, the likelihood that you will encounter double standards or that you will have to accept double standards maybe is... Um, that once you have an increasing degree of connectedness or um, of interdependence, and of course you can you can measure that interdependence if you look at trade flows, especially between China and Germany, for instance, or between China and the United States, and of course there the dependency of both sides is stronger than with Russia. So I mean, with with Russia, it is still a strong one for for the Germans, but it's um, in terms of products or in terms of the economic sector it's a pretty one-sided one so it's basically oil and gas and that's more or less it and when it comes to German exports to Russia it's a lot about things like cars or mechanical engineering products but um, it's certainly not about food or it's not about any kind of other resources so I mean um, I think if, if you look at those kind of um, aspects and then have a look at the recent discussions that you will find in or that you will hear in in Washington but that you may also hear in Beijing or in Moscow or maybe in Delhi is is that this idea that states can become an autarky again or that mm -hmm. states try to decouple um, or try to roll back or deglobalize I think that's um, in a way a worrying trend I mean economic liberals would say it's an, a worrying trend because it will basically mean that prices go up because, I mean, one of the things that um, liberal or that most political economists, at least the old traditional ones, um, agree on is that if you have some kind of um, international competition and open markets, and this will actually drive down prices, it will be, will be beneficial for most people. Yeah. Um, uh, that is not something we're seeing. I mean, uh, it's, it's a, a lot about, is, is about, uh, about onshoring, decoupling, rolling back globalization, trying to make your um, national economy more resilient. And I mean, I think that will be interesting to see over the coming decades. Um, as far as we can see today, it seems to be that there, there seem to be two new blocks. Um, one is basically North America, maybe with some parts of Central and Latin America and, and mm -hmm. Europe. And then there is certainly the kind of Eurasian idea of, um, of Xi Jinping and of, of Putin with certainly parts of Central Asia. Um, there is the biggest competition then in Africa, 
I, I, I would say, and mm. the Middle East is a bit unclear, and then, of course, also parts of Southeast Asia where you have, I mean, basically the ASEAN states, and where you yeah. also have Western allies, if you will, in, yeah. in the form of South Korea and Japan. So, I mean, mm. that's at least how the situation, I think, is being presented by policymakers in Washington or in Brussels or in Beijing or in... Moscow and the question is is it actually something that's going to happen is that um, and, and is therefore the increased visibility of double standards actually just a trend that is going to disappear because we are actually seeing less globalization so countries should be able to behave more consistently in their foreign policy and um, either because they don't have any economic interactions I mean whether Volkswagen pulls out of um, um, it's um, out of, of China um, uh, is no longer producing cars with um, Uyghur workers. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that will happen, but I mean, um, if that were the case, of course, that would also close some of the discussions or end the discussions, because I mean, if you are not invested in a certain region, um, you can actually say, Uh, or be more outspoken about democratic uh, def deficits because um, it won't have an economic impact. So I think mm -hmm. most of it is is that um, the biggest problem is I think is if you it's less a military aspect I would argue from a Western point of view. It's largely that you have some economic interests or you have some yeah of course um, economic relations that can be translated into mm -hmm. into jobs into um, market shares into your employment rate, your tax base, etc. And and therefore it can be very hard to be very outspoken when it comes to, for instance, a terrible human rights record of your economic counterpart, of your economic mm -hmm. trading partner. So I mean yeah. that I would blame most of the double standards on this discrepancy between on the one hand economic interconnectedness or interdependence and at the same time Well, of course, it's sort of value-based foreign policy or value-based orientation or, or the way countries try to project their self-image to the outside. And I think um, that everyone tries to present itself as a democracy is, I think, one of the interesting trends. And also, um, I think we also discussed it in the class, this BRICS summit declaration that in this one paragraph says that... Um, every BRICS country member or summit um, summit attendee actually supports the uh, principle of national sovereignty and of the um, inviolability of, of borders. And in the next paragraph, then going on to somehow accepting uh, the, Ukrainian, uh, the invasion of Ukraine mm -hmm. by Russia is also a double standard and, yeah. and, a, and a very bizarre point. So, I mean, you, you see that in a number of documents. So, I guess... It's here yeah, to yeah. stay. Yeah, but but again, uh, coming to my point, I guess it's it's pretty maybe strong one that uh, Russia doesn't want to be a good guy. That's I guess the the whole idea of the West that the West is is I mean I mean officially in everything they're doing they try to say we are good guys, and of course you can also think about like but why is that? I mean in terms of when did the West turn into good guys suddenly because the West was all, all about colonization was all about I mean basically. And, it, you know, it comes down actually even to colonization when they colonize those regions with a very good intent. Or even you can say they try to bring Christianity there with a very, 
mostly in very militaristic terms, but with a good intent. So again, I think that's what they say. Yes, of course. I mean, it's it's finding like, excuses in hindsight for things you did wrong. So I think that's that's what you see. But I mean, a, I, I any colonial I don't, power I don't, has, I think, that problem. And of course, most are from the West. Yeah, but I I don't think they did something wrong. They just did whatever they they thought they should have done, and and they did it. I guess that's that's that would be my point. That of course, like uh, the whole the I mean, maybe it's also the Western brilliancy in the sense of how they do things that they kind of separated, you know, ideas from their actions, and they try and they. And it's very interesting, especially in NATO, because of course NATO is something like a very militarist uh, organization, militant. I would say militant organization with a very strong kind of like a value-based narrative. And whatever like you want to kind of like call NATO, it's for them it's really it's really easy to dismiss every every kind of like thing you say about them. If you want to say that NATO is weak, they're gonna show you how many tanks they have and how you know how how good they can invade other countries. If you want to have something about that they're doing something wrong from value-based perspective, they will you know point to their declarations and their all their documents and saying how how good we are and we are all about democracy and human rights. So in the sense of that what makes kind of like the Western position invincible, and I think the whole idea of double standards is very useful in order to dismiss it, and dismiss it actually maybe with the research by saying, hey, your values don't really matter because your actions kind of diverge, coming to my point, that they may like diverge from your actions. And from, again, even from like this, this case studies, for me, of course, the question of like, why, why on earth America would have good relations with Saudi Arabia and not with Iran. So w what makes Iran and Saudi Arabia different? I mean, of course, nothing. I mean, that's the, the two... Well, if you look at history, yeah. I mean, that, there was different. I mean, it, because See, the but US not right now, I mean, supported the Shah. And no, I mean, I, 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 I changes. No, I mean, there's geopolitics and it's history, but this is another point. The point is, like, from like the way people live there, of course, it's a very... Theological, how do you say? I mean, it's not like even dictatorship. It's a special thing in itself. It's a theological state, right? Where there is no such thing as freedom at all. I mean, it's just not there, for, for especially for women. But not only. I mean, there is no such thing as freedom there. But like, why then? I mean, and there was the whole debate, of course, like uh, about like the war in Yemen, and why did why do they continue? supplying Saudi Arabia, even Saudi Arabia uses those weapons without any kind of precondition that they won't use it against civilians. They just use it however they choose to use them. Um, and again, like, but they, it's, there is really hard to, to say, yeah, there's really hard to say but, because, I mean, that's just geopolitics. They should, because Saudi Arabia is pro-American, and they get oil from Saudi Arabia, and they need Saudi Arabia, and they uh, they're not, not, not that much anymore. I mean, so, I they mean, still they still do have a partnership in some sort, and like Saudi Arabia pursues its own interests, and it's an interest of Saudi Arabia to be this kind of like have a certain independent position where they can be in effect, but they're also one of the main oil suppliers to the West, um, and this is why. I mean, even like if in one move like Saudi Arabia turns into, I mean, it's not possible, of course, like I mean, some pro-Iranian or some other like anti-American state. It would be over for Saudi Arabia, and they would be, and they would impose sanctions on Saudi Arabia and stuff like this. But this is like a hypocrisy that really should stri strike people, because like people with Saudi Arabian passports 
they could travel the whole world. I mean, oligarchs, not oligarchs, what do you call Shaks, Shaks. Saudi Arabian passport, they could travel the world. They would be treated as kings in every Western country. They would buy Rolex and they would drive those Ferraris and buy like the most expensive villas in England. But I mean, but then why people in Iran couldn't do this? Like just people, maybe not even like from perspective of like geopolitics, but like, but why Iranian people? And of course, for me, it's also, it comes to the personal question, the same about Russia. Why, why, like, but why, like, you know, people in Iran couldn't do this? What's the difference between them and people in Saudi Arabia? And of course, like here, like comes like Western double standards just because it's it's not in their interest. It's geopolitics. In another way, like I, I mean, I, I truly believe that dismantling norms from kind of like foreign policy actions is a useful tool to really kind of really point to uh, hypocritical nature with the facts, so to speak, because it's easy to say, yeah, I mean, the West is a hypocritical. But there is no like a template maybe to really to show like even to Western people, I mean, look, if you really stick to like I'm like this discourse, I mean this shouldn't really happen, blah blah blah. I mean maybe in this sense I find it's interesting, uh, kind of like theoretical not theoretical, I mean maybe conceptual conceptual thing, double standards. Yeah. But wouldn't that be I mean for instance the Middle East has been studied in terms yeah. of I don't know whether you read Buzan and Waver's things about regional security complexes. So, I mean, their idea is that you can actually analyze different regions in the world by looking at how they form more or less stable security relationships yeah. over time or environments. Of course, they are antagonistic ones, like the ones or the, the rivalry or competition between, on the one hand, um, Iran and Saudi Arabia, or what that is called the Sunni-Shia divide, um, where also then Iran tries to uh, have more influence in Syria or in, in Lebanon, and where you then also have strange bedfellows, as they say now, with, with um, technically cooperation between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. So I think maybe that's just, I mean, I guess their argument would be that is something we can observe in any larger region and it's it's a it's something like a historic pattern that evolves over time where you have different alliances that are shifting and you you have uh it's basically a question or a problem of regional power so i mean yeah. the reason that saudi arabia is in the position that um some of its policies are accepted by the states or by the by the united states is um something that is on the one hand past dependent because there's a certain history to it and the uh, relations between the, f the Saud family and um, American governments is a long one. At the same time, there were, uh, I mean, there was a, a long history of support after the um, coup against Mossadegh and the reinstation of the Shah. Um, I mean, under, uh, under the Shah and, and after the white revolution there, Before Khamenei came to power in 1979, there was a, a strong cooperation also between the Americans and the Iranians. So I think yeah, if you look at the Middle East, it's, it's a lot about um, who is actually, I mean, who are the countries that are perceived by the US or by, by Russia or by China as the ones that um, either make it easier for 
the great powers to pursue their interests and otherwise to ensure that there is some kind of regional stability. And in that sense, you still have something like a balance of power regional one, I guess. Um, yeah. And you, you, you see that Russia tries to gain more influence by now having uh, even Syria, except um, Lugansk and, um, and the... Um, Donetsk Republic, you have, you have the Chinese also building up ties. And I think um, in terms of, uh, there can be a change now, I think. And you saw that with the Americans who have really not left the Middle East, but have reduced their presence there. Um, first of all, because they are now no longer that dependent on exports from Saudi Arabia to the United States. When it comes to oil, they are pretty much self um, sufficient, or I mean, otherwise they get their oil and gas from places like Canada, um, which are more reliable. So in that sense, I think that's this. This was a typical stereotype of the in the run up to the Iraq war. That it's all about oil, and it's all about ensuring that America um, has access to oil. It used to be I mean, more the case. It now it's no longer at least on this on this energy level. But I think the rest is is just um, a question. It's just. When we talk about values, because whenever you find like any statement from American or Western kind of like official statement on Iran, they would always mention you know human rights and they would always call it like the most draconian state in the world. But I mean, to be honest, Saudi Arabia is the same. It's not the worst. But thing. I mean, the Biden administration, you have to give them the credit that they that they called out um, MBS, Mohammed Bill Salman. I mean, now they notice that um, they really have to do something about skyrocketing energy prices and therefore yeah. they asked the Saudis, hey please could you mm -hmm. produce a little bit more oil um, and then the Saudis said well we have to consult with the Russians and they said no, well, we can increase it slightly I, so, I mean I, I think in, the, in that oh. sense it's all the negotiation but I mean no, yeah, but I think the, the, the Americans you have to give them the credit that their position towards the, the towards Saudi Arabia has been better they I mean under under Biden I think they have actually be more consistent. I mean, the the, the yeah. double standards are still there. So I mean, you have you have people who are. Um, I mean, as I, as I said, who are killed. You have the death penalty if you are. I mean, it doesn't matter. It sounds cynical if you are a gay person in in Iran or in uh, or, or in Saudi Arabia, you will or might be killed in both countries. So of course, yes. they mean, should be. They should be. Both countries should be called out for that. And, and the criticism I mean, against Saudi Arabia will be slightly less, but still, it, it is now I, I better mean, than under Trump. If you follow, of course, like principles, they shouldn't be just called out. They should be like complete, like end of ties with such countries. Because I mean, they are really draconian places where you don't want to be born until you are Sheikh. I mean, of course, it's a different story for you, but it's just the countries where like uh, like situation for people is unbearable. The same is about, of course, like China and uh, Muslims living in China. It's something that. You know, you should really, if you if you if you think this value is important, of course they should nothing. They shouldn't be such thing as geopolitics because if if American cut ties with uh, with Saudi Arabia, of course they lose something. But it's not that it's such a big game changer that they would collapse, like the U.S. state would collapse. Of course not. I mean, but then it comes to the point of uh, I mean, from geopolitics perspective, it all makes sense. I mean, of course uh, you can really they would leave a power vacuum there. That's what yeah, yeah, the of argument, course, right? Of course. I mean, we cannot leave the Middle East because you know what would happen. No, from from geopolitical perspective, that all makes sense. But uh, that's the, the point about double standards that it doesn't make sense from 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 
normative perspective, a value-based perspective. Uh, until you really try to understand that this whole value-based perspective is, is used when, only when it should, like when, when, when there is a benefit in using this perspective. Otherwise, it's not really a strong kind of like template for thinking about world politics. That's mm -hmm. that, well, so. Would you think that then, to sum up our conversation, we could say, in an ideal world, we yeah. should have, we shouldn't encounter double standards because the values would always guide or be consistent with the norms or they would otherwise overrule geopolitical, realpolitik um, intents. But unfortunately, because either politics is driven by geopolitical considerations or because people or states or foreign policy mm -hmm. decision makers seem to overlook the benefits of a value-based foreign policy, they uh, somehow continue old traditional forms of of policies of national interest yeah i would say that uh i would say that one should study really actions instead of words and norms in the sense of those norms tend to tend to not work when there is no need in them and they tend to be invoked when there is a need in them so i mean something like this in the sense of um You couldn't separate your values from your actions, and even if you take well, like Western actions, they were pretty brutal. Even in recent times, they're very brutal and very kind of cynical and hypocritical in every due respect. So, in the sense of when there is a moral outrage about like what Russia is doing in Ukraine, I think it, it's also there is truth to the point that Russia would call and say, "Hey, you know, you did the same," and you know, so. I mean, they would say, so just go, go your, go your road. Uh, no, no, go your, <laughs> go mind your own business. <laughs> I mean, and uh, that's of course the point that, um, yeah, I, I, I would say that just one should really, really study, kind of like pay attention to actions. And the same, of course, goes about Russia or about China. Of course, like their actions. I mean, it's go, it goes without saying that Russian actions diverge from their words. In, in every due respect, especially in, ter in terms of internal politics, it's, it's just like there is no match between like what Russians like official position is and how they're doing things. Um, but uh, it seems it seems like the, the main driver, of course, of actions is, is geopolitics. Is like the accumulation of power, or if you can think about in in, in not in geopolitical thinking, in realist perspective, it's accumulation of power. It's uh, is this pursuit of power in itself, so to speak. Um, so th that's why I think double standards is just like a very, maybe interesting template. I mean, I, I want to maybe finish by saying that I actually tried to, to search like, like some like academic articles on double standards and I found very little. And There are a like, lot of Russian scholars who do that. Maybe, maybe I should have checked, like, but not in English, which is interesting because it's definitely not the thing that, I mean... I, again, from very kind of very kind of like ground, like just like very close to people perspective, I think we all kind of have sense. Like, well, what do we mean by double standards? I mean, I mean, we all meet people that you know that you know that have like one kind of like way of saying something, and then they're doing something else, and then you call them on double standards. And I guess, of course, it should be. Applied. So that would be the synonym for hypo hypocrisy, or. Uh, I, I guess I mean, the whole idea of double standards, it's, 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 for me, it's useful because there is a set of words and there is a set of like a narratives that you use and there is a set of actions that diverge from norms. That, that's exactly why double standards. I mean, hypocritical, 
I guess it depends from point from it would also suggest a malintent but yeah, you, malintent. you think some sometimes yeah. it could be just more or less accidental I mean sometimes you never I mean I mean the West I mean the double standards I mean for example from from Western perspective it's not like the West is not doesn't believe in its own values but they they tend to diverge from them for some reason and this is also the question would be a research question well especially that. in the eyes of others and I think that's so I mean uh, of course it's it's no, a, a, what Yeah. In IR theory, social constructivism can certainly teach us is, mm. is that is that intersubjective di dimension. So I mean, even if we ourselves, as the West or whatever, yeah. think that we are actually pursuing a policy that is yeah, consistent yeah. with our values, it might not be perceived that way by others. And I think um, yeah, that's, that's what you can see now no, nowadays not, not, in, by every in every country. Why is it, why is it being misperceived by others, and why do kind of like our Western actions diverge from our own values, so to speak? How do we actually reconcile, you know, that the whole Western, like, you know, 400, 400 uh, years of time were also about, like, you know, good values, but, like, with colonialism and how maybe, you know, like, modern, modern period of time is also, like, the neo-colonialism neo in the sense of how do we, how, how does West continue doing the same thing, but kind of, like, kind of like mask it with some, like, you know, value-based um, value perspective. Um, and I think it's it's really not not in the, in the sense it, it just uh, may be useful even for, for for the West to ask like, why is that like why do our values tend to diverge from our of, of our actions tend to diverge from our values not not like in a hypocritical sense I mean maybe they truly want to do good things in the world but for some reason they have to use you know uh, uh, armies and uh, and tanks to, to achieve this. <laughs> so I guess we have to go back to you said 400 years that leaves us with I mean looking at enlightenment yes and decolonization and post-colonial thought exactly next time yes uh, so yeah thank you very much and hope to see you pleasure and uh, we keep uh, continuing our discussion yes. on another subject <laughs> soon exactly thank you